0: welcome to the sunday night health show podcast tonight we chat with kindy gill about facing life's adversities head-on and healing through the dalian method david g harper joins me to catch up on chronic disease i talk about male rejection and what that does to self-esteem and what one man is doing to combat that i continue my break the silence campaign and talk about narcissistic personality disorder Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. So great to have you with me this evening. It's always my pleasure to be with you. Your health is your wealth, and through the expertise of my guests and storytelling along with review of the evidence, I hope to educate you on the benefits of good health. My objective is that you are not only a little bit better informed, but healthier and happier too. And guess what? Sex and intimacy has a lot to do with that. Sex facilitates feelings of intimacy, which does a lot more than make you feel warm and fuzzy all over. It actually improves your overall health. Time to put the kids to bed. Remember, this show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor for whatever. Ails you. So thank you for joining me. If you have a question for me at all, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. The phone lines are open tonight. Or if there's something you'd like me to cover, feel free to email or uncover for that matter. Feel free to email me at hotmail.com. Soon, 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 I've been promising you my new website and it's coming very, very soon. I think within, maybe by next Sunday I'll have it. Anyway, the new URL is Um But for now, just email me Hotmail.com. I have some emails that I will read tonight to you a little bit later on in the program, but tonight on the program we are talking about recognizing uh, the patterns of abusive behavior by those lovely narcissists. I'm um, also going to be talking uh, with Kindy Gill about facing life's adversities head-on and healing through the Dalian method. David G. Harper, author of BioDiet, joins me to catch up on chronic disease. I'm also going to be talking about male rejection and what that does to sexual self-esteem. And I continue to break the silence. I continue my break the silence campaign and uh, talk about uh, different ways uh, that uh, people feel abused and how they can get out of those relationships or recognize it early on. Lots to talk about, but. Right now, I want to talk about uh, a shocking statistic uh, from British Columbia. One in four teenage girls in Kamloops and the Okanagan cut themselves. So don't confuse teenagers who cut themselves uh, with those who are contemplating suicide. I do want to say welcome to the program, Tim. Thanks for uh, handling the boards. There you go. It's <laughs> great to have you back. Um uh, this uh, cutting is, um, you know, to be honest with you, I've encountered this. I have seen this um, in the past. And the fir- very first time I saw it in a teenage girl, you know, that was my thought. I- I'd actually heard about it. Um, somebody had talked about their daughter uh, was a cutter and basically had, was slit- slitting, you know, the wrists and up. It's almost like a, a stepladder kind of. Um, you know, cutting that occurs. And I, my, that was my initial thought. I have to say, you know, is is this child wanting to um, kill herself? But that is not necessarily uh, the case. This was a 2018 BC Adolescent Health Survey, and it found that 25% of Okanagan girls between the ages of 12 and 19 admitted that they had cut or injured themselves on purpose without the intent of killing themselves. The rate in the Thompson-Okanagan area was that much higher at 28%. Boys do not self-harm as much as girls do. Uh, And in fact, it's at a much lower rate, um, being at around 10%. And this is extremely alarming, this statistic. Apparently, it's on the rise. Over the years, there. Um, this was a very robust survey and it was um, given to 38,000 students between the ages of 12 and 19, or that's how many actually had responded. And so there's a lot of concern here. Um, a lot of these, most of these kids did not access the healthcare system. A lot of these kids are suffering from uh, anxiety disorder, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, one in five, according to the survey, did not get the mental health care that they felt they needed. And it's particularly worrying that for 62% of the youth who missed out on care, a primary reason was not wanting their parents to know. Um, So this is um, very, very disturbing. Um, It's extremely difficult. Listen, we all have problems in life and uh, our children have issues and problems and mental health continues to have that stigma. So joining me on the line right now now is kindy uh, Kindy uh, Gill, and uh, she is ex, an expert in the Dalian method, a particular method that is systematic and mathematic um, to help you deal with whatever it is that life throws your way, whatever curveball that is. So thank you so much, Kindy, for joining me in the studio tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Maureen. Thank you. Oh, uh, it's great to have you because, you know, not every type of therapy works for every person, but according to what you've sent me, this particular, method uh, works 100% of the time, if done right, I would imagine. And I had a quick review. um, And I know that it involves a bit of a mirror, which is often what I talk to my patients about in my clinical practice. What role did they have? What's their responsibility? So tell me a little bit about the Dalian method. And is this something that
1: could help anxiety, depression, PTSD? Uh, Well, the first thing to mention is that I got introduced to the method because at that time, I was actually depressed. Um, And my first experience with it, with one session with it, lifted the depression, which in itself sounds incredibly miraculous. Um, The technique is extremely foolproof. So it has um, ebbs and flows, valleys and all sorts that it goes through, very, very specifically designed to go through very specific chambers of the body so that it first releases and reveals the sabotaging ideas that the mind is having that's causing it to be depressed, anxious, sad, grief-stricken, heart-driven, heart heartache, whatever it might be. So, first of all, it reveals those aspects, but then it does more than that by going into the story or the original imprint that caused those emotions to surface. There's always a reason behind what we're what we're feeling. Was this a situational depression that you had, or was this a chronic depression? Mine that was you a had? situational depression. Okay. Um, and um, but I've I've dealt with patients that have had bipolar depression. I've dealt with patients that have been in psychiatric units for um, long stretches of time, and we're using the same Dalian method to help them too. But the thing about this particular technique that is very very special is that what it does is it bypasses what the mind is doing. And it comes into the zero space that resides within all of us, which is the place where our peace resides, where our capacity to be able to be self-aware resides and where our consciousness is. And so what it does is it helps you to see the lesson behind the experiences that you're having. And once you see the lesson, you come out of the story and you come out of the sabotage that the mind is experiencing. And it's through growth in self-awareness that then lifts you out. Um, and it's that that helps you to be grounded in a new state and the story and the thoughts that you're having internally just spontaneously change and the old ones evaporate a little bit like magic, really, like they evaporate as soon as they've been transformed.
0: It does sound a little like magical thinking, yeah, that's I right. must
1: admit. <laughs> um, so I,
0: I, I have to say I'm, I'm mildly skeptical, of course, mm, of I ha- course. having never been through the yes, dally and that's nothing. right. Yeah. Um, so is this is this through questionnaires? how How is it done that people reveal their story?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to take about five minutes or so, five to ten minutes understanding somebody's story. So they've had some pointed questions sent to them, but in advance, so that they can put a little bit of focus into what it is that they want to address. But that's just to help them get a little bit of trust that their issue and their ailment or what they're experiencing is going to get addressed. And and what would those questions be? They tend to be, what's the primary thoughts that you're tending to have that we keep replaying over and over in your head? What's your go-to emotion? So is it anger? Is it grief? Is it sadness? Like, what is it that you spontaneously just kick into when you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed or anxious? Um, We tend to ask a little bit about the physical body, what's happening with it and what uh, type of places in the body that you're aware of that's holding tension or um, is a bit contracted or even where there's an illness or an ailment there. And so those type of questions help people to focus on what's going on. But then that's the only part that we do with the mind. And from then onwards, it's a formula that Mada Eliza Dalian created. And what this does is we first teach you how to identify the thoughts and the ideas that you have that you're unaware of that are fueling the type of thinking that you're having so we go through a teaching process to help you to understand your body better and to help you to understand what messages it's giving you and once you get to a stage where you're Feeling pretty confident about the fact that your relationship with your own body and what it's trying to design, what it's trying to help you to see is there. Then we go through this prefixed formula, which is basically an audio um, recording with set gaps that have all been figured out very, very carefully by Madam Eliza Dalian as to how much time needs to be taken in each part of the body point. We go through. I don't know whether you've heard of the chakra system. Mm -hmm. So we go through the seven chakras in varying orders. We also go through other parts like the knees, the back of your neck, the back of your neck, the third eye, which is part of the chakras anyway, um, the lower back, um, your feet, your shoulders. There's so many other points that she's used in the system, and what she's in what way? So what you're doing is you're verbally expressing what's coming up from inside you that's part of the unconscious that you were unaware of after we've taught you how to access it. Okay, we're going to
0: leave it on that note for now, but you're going to stay in the studio and we're of going to course. continue this conversation. <laughs> in the studio with me right here, in person is Kindy Delight gill She she is talking about the Dalian method. Who hasn't had a curveball thrown at them in life? And what's your response? Do you become fearful? Are you afraid? Do you get anxious? Do you stop sleeping? Well, kindy is here to tell us what's going on with our bodies and our minds and... The, Uh, the Dalian method, which will help us all um, get treated in one session, did you say, or is it several sessions? um, Well,
1: because the method is actually very, very effective and very, very fast in its uh, ability, if you use the session, what typically arises is that whatever you're facing will get dealt with. And it could be several months before you decide that there's some other experience that you're having that you feel like dabbling with it again. Right. So some clients come mm-hmm. and they might have one experience, and then maybe three or four months later are ready to have another session. It's not like ongoing therapy, right? Where you're turning up every week and you're progressively working your way through. Um, it's like a very potent exercise, and it's experiential.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: although you were asking me some technical questions earlier, the easiest way to describe this really is a bit like you know, if uh, we disguise, if we started to describe the strokes involved in in learning how to swim. Mm -hmm. You're going to have everybody everywhere, really, because they're not really going to get that experience. But if they're in the water and they've been taught how to swim, then then they know that this experience I know how to handle, right? Right, right. The Dalian method is like that. It's an experience that only through participation with the technique... Do you get to understand what it's capable of doing and the benefits? And if you have a
0: question out there, you're having an issue that you're going through and you wonder if the Dalian method is for you, give us a call. The number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight, 877 And so... I imagine so. Somebody's having a problem. Mm-hmm. Say, I have a friend who's mm-hmm. having a problem right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe they're having an issue in their life, and maybe I know them. Um, and then, <laughs> but then they go through the Dallian method, and and then maybe and everything gets resolved. But then, four months down the road, they might have another problem altogether, different.
1: Yeah, they or it may could be a branch utilize. of the same thing. Okay. So anxiety and or fear, like we tend to, we tend to call. Um, fear-based things as anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes people experience it as mass overwhelm. Sometimes people experience anxiety through sadness. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people shut down and then they begin to feel um, a form of depression where they're closing in on themselves and they haven't got much energy to actually activate or participate in life. So it doesn't really matter what symptoms you're experiencing. The bottom line is that there is some form of fear that's causing those symptoms to arise. So is it always rooted in fear? Always rooted in fear because ultimately our body is programmed to want to stay alive. And Mm -hmm. we're all very, very aware whether we actually like to admit it or not, or whether it's in our conscious awareness or not. We're very aware that it's going to die one day. So everything is ultimately rooted in the fear of death. Um, And underneath that is yet another fear, which is actually ironically the absolute opposite, which is the fear of joy. Because Mm -hmm. once you exit out of the body... There's a lot of jubilation that a person experiences too. But then there's going to be lots of branches. There's going to be the fear of the unknown. There's going to be the fear of being rejected. There's going to be the fear of being visible. There's going to be the fear of failing. There's going to be the fear of... like. There's a whole host of things. Fear of not fitting in. Fear of not belonging. And so what tends to happen now for the modern generation is that there is such high stress being imposed in terms of the regular exams that the kids are doing the regular ways that they're being monitored and assessed against each other um, that peer pressure that's affecting them day in day out the grades that they're expected to get are getting higher and higher and higher to get into any other sort of like post-secondary educational institution mm-hmm. so we're almost programming children to be afraid of their survival. Right. Um, and so a lot of what's happening is that they think their worth is measured by a grade or somebody's approval or somebody's uh, nod or idea that they, they are good enough it's startling that we
0: have uh, 25% of girls between the ages of 12 and 19 cutting themselves. And, you know, I think there's a contagion factor there. I do think that girls share that, you know, I cut myself. I, it made me feel better when I broke up with my boyfriend, whatever. Um, you know, maybe you should try that as well because that peer pressure is another ingredient in that uh, cocktail.
1: I haven't seen it with cutting so specifically, so I can't talk to that particular point. But what I have seen is... That there is a willingness to say I'm anxious as if it's the trendy thing to say. Oh, it's very, it's very right? in vogue. Let me because, d- because others are saying it, so let I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say I'm anxious, and then also to wallow in the anxiety and stay in it rather than to be proactive to say that there's something that I could be doing to come out of it. Right. It's like well, so and so anxious, so and so anxious. So-and-so's, well, I'm just part of that same thing too. Right. And that's just the way I'm supposed to be, and it becomes a bit of a. Um, I'm going to sound harsh with this and I don't mean to be harsh, but it can become an excuse to not be responsible. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had a client that had bipolar depression and at the root of the bipolar depression was actually a belief saying that I don't want to grow up Mm -hmm. and I don't want the responsibility because this particular individual had two physicians as his parents and he'd seen and experienced throughout his childhood this high extreme of stress that these two parents had gone through And rightly or wrongly, as a kid, he'd made the assumption that it's better not to grow up.
0: Right, you know, i got to agree with him sometimes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's best being a kid. It's the best time of life.
0: It should be, but it's so challenging for some people. Anyway, Kendi, delight, Gil, thank you so much for joining me and telling us all about the Dalian method, and I think I'm going to have to experience it myself.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. We'll
0: get you back and talk a little bit more about it. Coming up next, we're talking about chronic disease and the update on the bio diet. I am Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Shift over to diet uh, from stress to diet, which actually is still stress for me, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, but anyhow, Don't be stressed. <laughs> I know, you know. It's uh, anyway when you're when you're stressed when yeah. you when you get life's curveballs thrown at you, um, many of us eat. Many of us eat, yeah, sure. and we eat the That's wrong good. things, usually, or, we, yeah. or we don't eat.
2: Well, we, we eat to assuage <laughs> that pain, so we give ourselves whatever we think we want, which is usually sweet things that are very good for us.
0: Right, or, or we stop eating altogether. We, some
2: people stop eating yes, altogether, they yes. punish themselves, if, you know, there's, there's some really what rich What if you don't
0: have ball. an appetite? What if you just don't have an appetite?
2: Well, again, that can be infected by anxiety, which we were talking about earlier. Right. Uh, and, and even some other health conditions can actually affect the... Remember last week we talked about leptin and ghrelin. Those yes. hormones can be upset as well. So, yeah, the emotional effects on eating and diet are, are very powerful, as are the mm-hmm. cultural ones too. So mm-hmm. these are some of the things that... Can be challenges when you're trying to change your diet, as, as we are, as you are converting from I a sugar-based diet. I and you know, uh, I had a couple
0: and... of uh, you know fear-based days, and you know, I can't eat anything. <laughs> right. You know, I, I'm not punishing myself. No. I just cannot. I, it, it just shuts down. The, um, the appetite is just gone and because I of cannot, the anxiety. Yeah. Okay. Because I and can't it put also. Anything in my mouth
2: okay well that's 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 a different thing from not feeling hungry, which mm-hmm. happens with a lot of people when they convert to fat adaptation because your your blood sugar levels stay mm-hmm. moderate all the time, and it's usually low blood sugar that makes us feel hungry so mm-hmm. but that's a different thing from just not mm-hmm. wanting to eat anything. That's more of like a nausea thing which which is probably stress related yeah yeah,
0: yeah totally mm-hmm. stress related anyway yeah. um so otherwise, how are you doing? otherwise I'm okay <laughs>
2: <Yeah>? <laughs> How was the week? How's the week diet
0: not bad. Good. Good. <laughs> it was okay. You know, like I'm not a perfectionist. I, I view Just myself. As, I'm not. I'm. A, I'm. I'm methodical. I'm more order of things. You know, more okay. so than like, you know. I won't. You know. I. I won't. I don't know. I don't consider myself. <laughs> perfectious, but you do. Okay.
2: Okay, folks, I've been watching her for <laughs> the
0: last couple of months. What I mean is like, I'm okay that I only got 80% on oh, the yeah, no, that's diet fine. this yeah, week, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm going to be like... Well, no, that doesn't help. right? Yeah, it yeah. doesn't no, help. No, it's not going to help. And,
2: and, and you know, people convert to these things to different degrees depending on what they need. and what you. Like, if you right. don't have any real health considerations and you just want to lose some weight, you know, once you've lost that weight, you can moderate. And we're going to talk about that in a month or so when we get to the next phase. Um, but, but for right now, let's talk about those health effects, right? The the therapeutic effects of the of the bio diet, and and this is the my from my perspective the really important thing. I love it when people lose, lose weight because of course, obesity is a disease and uh-huh. it does affect those other two elements of the axis of illness, which are inflammation and insulin resistance. And um, so we've been going through last week. We talked about brain health. So this week I wanted to talk about uh, the beneficial, the therapeutic benefits of ketogenic diets for. Uh, diabetes. And we're talking about diabetes type 2, which is most of the diabetes we see. It's about 90%. Uh, The other 10% is mostly people that uh, have an autoimmune uh, reaction that kills the beta cells, the insulin producing cells. And these are the people we often think of as diabetics because they have to take the injections of insulin daily. Uh, Type 2 diabetics... This is a slow, progressive onset, and it often takes maybe ten years before. Although we're starting to see it in children now, which is really sad mm-hmm. because of this high sugar diet we've had them on. Mm-hmm. But typically, for adults, it might take. It usually the obesity sort of comes first, and then and then about ten years later, we see the increase in uh, in in diabetes being diagnosed. And and in between those years, there's a condition called pre diabetes. About half of the people with prediabetes will actually uh, become diabetic. And it's all kind of arbitrary. I mean, they just have these arbitrary definitions of how much sugar is in your blood after Mm -hmm. you've been fasting for eight hours. Or um, that's one test they do, which is the standard blood test. If they think your blood sugar is a bit high, the next test that your physician would would order is probably a glucose challenge, they call it. And And you go, again, you fast... You get your blood taken. You drink a certain bolus of glucose solution, and then two hours later, you take another blood test, and that that tells you how good your system is at getting that sugar out of your blood. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's the excess sugar in your blood that really is what we call diabetes.
0: And that's the glucose tolerance test, correct?
2: correct? That's that's the, the glu- GTT, the glucose yeah. tolerance test. Yeah. yeah. And then and then if if they want to know more about insulin resistance, which is really related to the type two diabetes. They, they might do what's called a HOMA, a HOMA-IR, which is it's a measure of how much insulin is in your blood compared to how much uh, glucose is in your blood. And that will uh, will give an indication of how good your body is, your cells are at uptaking that sugar of the blood. So what happens when you're on a high-carbohydrate, high-sugar diet uh, is you're, cr- you're chronically subjecting your system to more glucose in the blood than it. Can really tolerate. Now, you know, when you're younger, you can tolerate that. You can absorb that extra sugar. Uh, after a while, you start to store it as fat. And after longer still, and we're talking years now, the cells start to become deaf to that insulin signal. So the amount of insulin that would absorb an appropriate amount of sugar in the blood is now not enough. So you have to secrete even more insulin. And and as you do that, you're raising your insulin levels, mm-hmm. which we know has all kinds of bad effects. We don't want it to be elevated for too long. And secondly, you lose the ability over time to actually regulate that blood sugar. And then you have full-blown type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And that is not a great diagnosis to have because no. right now there are no drugs that will cure type 2 diabetes. All mm-hmm. we can do at that point is manage the progression of the disease, which over a period of many years will, uh, it, it leads to complications such as blindness, kidney failure, mm-hmm. uh, 60% increased risk of Alzheimer's as we talked about last week, um, and other um, sort of debilitating and, and uh, you, could, you could lose limbs in fact. And usually people will die early of complications of diabetes. Now, if you add up all the people that die of complications of diabetes, it makes it the third leading cause of death after uh, cancer and cardiovascular disease.
0: Uh-huh. I had a patient in my office this week. Uh, she's she's actually returned to me. I, I saw her maybe a year and a half or two years ago. Sexless marriage was the issue. I saw her and her husband. And um, recently she's returned. And you know, she said that she was leaking urine. So I, I deal with that as a nurse mm. continence advisor. And she was overweight and had low sexual desire. And so she said in the order, she didn't want to leak urine anymore. She wanted to get the sexual desire back. And then the third was um, deal with her weight issues. And so I suggested I hopefully she's listening tonight. Oh great. <laughs> I, <suggested laughs> I hope so too. She'd tune in. Um and then this week she you know, I saw her that was a couple weeks ago and then I uh-huh. saw her this week and she said that, you know, she switched the priority and you know, like the the weight was in the middle. You know, the weight leakage was number one still, mm-hmm. weight was number two, and desire was number three. Mm-hmm. But you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of motivation, I have to say. I didn't sense a whole lot of motivation for her to change her diet and mm-hmm. and people don't realize the impact on on one's health and one's yeah. life yeah. and one's you know how long people are going to live, how mobile they can be, their risk of falls and fractures, other chronic conditions, which we're going to talk about tonight as well that um, are associated with poor dietary habits. Yeah, and and
2: I think a couple of weeks ago I referred to a study that was in the Lancet, I think twenty seventeen the global burden of chronic disease and uh, is uh, in terms of lifestyle factors. Um, diet is more important, more influential on your likelihood of getting chronic disease then smoking, then drinking, then sedentary behavior, lack of exercise, all of those combined, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so as we say, what's on the end of your fork might be the most important health decision you make every day, and i, I that's what I'm trying to do, Maureen, mm-hmm. is I'm trying to help people understand just how important a healthy diet is and and again, it's not one size fits all mm-hmm. uh, what i've what I'm um helping to educate people on is is the potential for Uh, the well-formulated ketogenic diet to treat various chronic diseases and maybe prevent them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And diabetes is the one for which there's been some really, really good, robust, long-term, we're going three years now, uh, evidence, scientific evidence, uh, mostly from Sarah Hallberg, uh, University of Indiana, um, to show the beneficial effects of of the mm-hmm. of a, a ketogenic diet for people with diabetes. It's it, other than epilepsy, it's probably the one for which we have the strongest evidence.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we're going to actually talk a little bit about some of those um, diseases. We're going to sure. Um, Carry on, and uh, and then we'll go to break, and uh, and then we'll talk about arthritis and diabetes, and uh, what else are we going to address tonight?
2: Oh uh, well, tonight, well, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the uh, in Canada the the incidents. I want to stick with diabetes for a while because I don't think mm-hmm. people realize the impending <laughs> storm mm-hmm. of diabetes, and and both the personal the social and the economic impact that's gonna have. So I'd love to share some numbers with that with you.
0: Let's do it. I'm here with David G. Harper. He is the author of The Bio-Diet, and we are talking about uh, diet as it relates to chronic disease. Thanks so much for staying in the studio with me, David. Oh, my pleasure. So we're talking about diabetes and you've got mm-hmm. some um, sobering statistics for us. Yeah,
2: um, it's it's frightening actually. And if you look at the, the present state of affairs, well, even going back 2015, uh, globally, we were spending about $1.3 trillion a year treating diabetes. Now, remember, we only spent about $7 trillion a year globally on food. So, wow. And, and if you look at what's happened in, in, in Canada, the incidence of diabetes has increased 50% in the last 10 years. There are now uh, 3.4 million people diagnosed with diabetes and another 5 to 6 million. In Canada? In Canada. 3.4 million. One in 10 people. Whew. And wow. and another almost twice as many more that are pre diabetic, and the estimate by Health Canada is that by 2025—that's only five years from now—44 percent of adult Canadians will have diabetes. That's horrifying. <laughs> well, and then you consider the the cost of that. Um, they have done an estimate in the United States. The um, the US CDC uh, estimates that by 2030, which is only ten years out the cost of treating just type 2 diabetes in the United States will be over $600 billion, which is, to put that in context, about what they spend on their defense budget every year. That's, that's just diabetes. Yeah, that's amazing. And so it has the potential, if we don't address this 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 epidemic crisis in diabetes, it has the potential to bankrupt the planet. I mean, mm-hmm. we just don't have enough money or drugs to treat it all. Right. And then what do we do? So the best thing as with most diseases is don't get it in the first place. And um, so what you want to do is moderate your insulin levels because it's the the chronically excessively high insulin in your blood. It's called hyperinsulinemia, too much insulin in your blood. That chronically high level will lead to insulin resistance Mm -hmm. and that eventually for most of us will lead to diabetes. So you prevent that by lowering your insulin and you lower your insulin, uh, the good news is quite simply by lowering your carbohydrate intake. Mm -hmm. And so if you really lower it to a ketogenic diet, um, then your body will moderate the blood sugar and the blood insulin levels to where they should be all the time. And so with people we've had in the clinic that have had type 2 diabetes, so they have insulin resistance... So the opposite of that is insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. We can increase their insulin sensitivity by 75%, so almost back to normal within four weeks with a ketogenic diet. That's the average. We've seen people that have been type 2 diabetic for 10 years, you know, using metformin, sometimes insulin as well, uh, within a few days, this is rare, but within a few days they return to normal. And And so in that case, as long as they stay on the ketogenic diet, uh, they don't need to take any medication. So mm-hmm. I tend to t- want to call that a cure, but I'm told we should call that a reversal because they must stay on the ketogenic diet too, to maintain that uh, reversal of the disease. So the, the numbers there are over two years, about 60% of people on a ketogenic diet that have type 2 diabetes can reverse their diabetes. Mm-hmm. 90% can reduce their medications
0: it's amazing Uh, we were talking about some of the barriers when we were off air um Mm -hmm. to this and i was surprised to learn that the dietitians need to remain within a scope of practice that may be archaic
2: it depends where they work um Mm -hmm. so and often dietitians which are professionals so Nutrition is a field that is not regulated, mm-hmm. so really, just look
0: at Instagram and you can <laughs> see that.
2: <laughs> Anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. Now there are people; there are qualifications for nutrition, which you can go and. But but like other fields, it, it's not uh, a regulated profession. Say mm-hmm. like like physicians or say massage therapists are regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, dietitians are regulated, and most dietitians in most jurisdictions. Uh, you must follow the food guide, the national food guide. So in Canada, that's the Canada food guide. So these would be people working in schools and hospitals and seniors' homes and so on. In the United States, in some states, if you don't do that, you
0: could be charged criminally. Really? In California, that's... And the Canada food guide is outdated. Would it, you say it had well, the right it,
2: word? Well, probably not because it was just updated and there were some very good things in the New Canada Food Guide. Okay. You know, just drink uh, you know, water and tea and a little bit of wine here and there. Uh, and don't eat. They, they don't eat sugar, huge thing, uh, stay off sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, if you look at the food plate they have, and we estimated uh, the group, the Canadian clinicians for therapeutic nutrition, um, estimate there's probably 70% of the calories on that plate are from carbohydrates. And carbohydrates... You know, if it's not sugar, it's starch, and starch is just super concentrated glucose as well. So, so really, this 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 obsession with these, you know, eating lots of whole grains and things like that, I think is a mistake, and I think it's contributing to a lot of the obesity and resulting diabetes that we're seeing today.
0: Okay, not that I'm a perfectionist or anything, but you <laughs> called me that. Um, but that would—I've been fly. called that too. So you're good company. <laughs> <laughs> that would fly in the face of. Um, the of uh, you know uh, good uh the that the Canada Food Guide is up to date.
2: Yeah, I've I've kind of been openly critical of the Canada Food Guide right, publicly. Right. I'm kind of famous for that. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. So it's awesome. Uh, well, but that's all good that. science, right? If if yeah. you, if you have Uh, a model, a paradigm, Mm -hmm. and you're presented with new evidence, new robust evidence to the contrary, good science says you must reject that existing model and accept a new one. Now, in New Zealand, in Australia, and even the United States, the American Diabetes Association has now accepted low-carbohydrate and very low-carbohydrate diets, which would be ketogenic diets, as accepted therapeutics for diabetes. So, the health community is coming around, but usually when we have this paradigm shift, and this is quite a dramatic one that's happening, mm-hmm. it takes the regulators and the professional associations uh, 10, to, 10 to 15, sometimes 17 years, I think right. on average for the medical profession. So these are the early days. We probably, we're probably probably about five years into that now that we've had very good robust evidence for the therapeutic effects uh, of ketogenic diets and the ability to
0: prevent us from getting chronic disease. And so maybe the Canada's new food is a step in the right direction but it's not moving in the right
2: well you know it's it gets very political because uh first for for example you know in terms of accounting <laughs> accountability and transparency, nobody knows who 's on the committee that makes those decisions they won't tell us. So that, to me, is already uh, an indicator that maybe they're not doing good science there. lack
0: of transparency uh, there with the politicians. And the other thing, of course, to remember,
2: always to remember, is that correlation is not causation. So a lot of these recommendations are based on observational studies Mm -hmm. and on population-based studies, which only show correlation. Mm -hmm. That's not causation. What Mm -hmm. we can do with the ketogenic diet, with the experiments we're doing today, with the very sophisticated type of experiments we can do at the BC Cancer Research Center... Mm -hmm. is we can show at the cellular molecular level exactly how ketogenic diets work to prevent and treat
0: chronic disease. Okay, well, I know you've got a big ship to turn around, and you started it here on the Sunday Night Hill Show. <laughs> thanks to you. <laughs> no, no, thanks to your. And great your ship is turning around as well. Book my yep. ship is turning around. <laughs> I'm afraid my weight loss this week was due to an elevated heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's, it's
2: called exercise. <laughs> <which> is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's no, sort of sedentary exercise It's a new a new method of exercising. <laughs> yeah. you know, just and sit my there pool's and stress out. for
0: three weeks, uh, by the way, for cleaning. Right. Um, but you have a phenomenal book. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. Yes, well, and
2: so org if people want to go and have a look at the book and uh, next week we'll be talking about uh, cancer as a, and and how ketogenic diets that's my area of research is the therapeutic benefits uh, specifically for women with breast cancer so we'll be looking at that next week
0: and so yeah diet is so closely related to um, breast cancer or the you know <laughs>
2: Actually, uh, after smoking, the the most important risk factor for uh, cancer overall is obesity. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's part of the axis of illness, obesity, insulin resistance, and inflammation. Right. So all of those things are affected uh, and aggravate cancer as well. So we'll talk about that next
0: week. Well, that's fantastic. Okay, so biodiet.org. Get the book. It's got science for the first half and then practicality in the second half. And, and we have the audio book available. Uh, though, and the so. audio books too. And, the, mm-hmm. and it's very, um, you know, it's, a, it's an easy to read uh, Thank you. book and very interesting. Uh, it'll open your mind up, and you'll open up your fridge, and you'll have a whole lot more beautiful things inside your fridge um, than than the old things in your cabinet because your yeah. your fridge looks prettier. And, and a shout are.
2: out, uh, shout out to my wife too, Dale Drury, who co-wrote the book with me, and she co-reads it with me. So it's actually us that are reading the book.
0: What a guy! What a guy! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, anything about me, and you may or may not know this, but uh, when I started in regular radio, because I was a part-time girl before, I was a um, contributing, I was a contributor, health contributor, something like that they would call me, a regular health contributor. (laughs) Tim's saying yes. (laughs) That's what I was, (laughs) sort of. So I would come on occasionally here, there, and everywhere and talk about whatever, mostly vaginal dryness. Um, But anyway, I... uh, Evolved, and uh, it was at a time that I had an extremely negative situation in my life, where I had taken a contract, um, and and it was for a narcissist, and he was bullied me, and he bullied, and I found out that he bullied a number of women before me, not only just at the company that we were working at, but at the previous um, job that he had held. Well, the previous job that he had held, he was actually a photocopy boy and then advanced to CEO. So, you know, like there's, there's pathology there. Um, But prior to that, in his other role, he had actually abused women as well and emotionally and verbally and sexually harassed them. And, and um, I mean, the funny thing about it is, or the ironic thing is that he was um, a gay man who was closeted. And I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I'm not a psych Psychiatrist by any stretch of the imagination. I do play one here on the radio, but every now and again. Um, but it was at a time where I was extremely devastated by this. Like I was, really shocked at the impact that this abuse had on me, on my emotional health. I became depleted, and I. But I, I realized what was happening, and I and I filed a complaint with the human rights tribunal. I got the what I feel is like the best lawyer in um, that I could get, and uh, and so you know, I processed through it. And and it was at a time where I had this opportunity to have my own radio show. And I remember, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic and, you know, we bargain and we have guilt and we withhold nine yards. <laughs> and so I went through all of that. And if I'm so lucky as to get this, then I will do that kind of a thing. And so I uh, remember thinking if I were so fortunate as to get this opportunity for to have a regular radio show, I will never forget um, the to talk about a very important health issue, uh, violence against women, which I had for the very first time experienced in my life, at the at the in the year twenty twelve, and um, and so I. I I was stunned at this and I, you know, I'd probably heard about it. I didn't really know too much about it. Women would come into my practice and they would tell me that they'd been sexually abused as a child. And, you know, I didn't really fully understand it, but, but I got a much better idea of what it does and what it does to a woman. Um, just having experienced eight weeks of emotional abuse in the workplace and, and sexual harassment as well, uh, you're taken off guard. You're debased. You're like gobsmacked. You're constantly shaking your head, and and you know other people are being abused as well, and nobody says anything. But then there's also a solar system that the the narcissist has that you know a solar system of supporters, and so they're and, and everyone is is thriving, if you will, if you can call it thriving in fear. They're in a constant state of fear. And that was certainly what happened at this particular workplace. But it changed me. I have to say it made me a lot more aware. It made me a lot more um, compassionate about violence against women. It was just not something that had crossed my desk, to be honest with you. I, I had fantastic Father, um, brothers, you know, my father always said, you know, you can do whatever you want in life and, you know, was always extremely supportive, very, very kind to the men in my life. I've always been gentle, lovely, understanding, caring, compassionate. I had just not come across this kind of crazy abuse. I'm going to get a little bit into the narcissistic, um, type of abuse, uh, in the next segment. But, but right now, you know, around the globe, we're seeing, we're seeing, um, such violence in Mexico. For example, a woman was, who raised awareness in Mexico on the radio. Um, she was 37 years old, 37, 38, and she was shot at point blank range. Um, for raising awareness and trying to end violence of women and children, women and children go missing routinely in Mexico. I mean, this is something that i that I talk about myself uh, here in Canada um, on you know, pretty much weekly because this is so critical uh, that this violence against women, whether it's covert or overt, sexual, financial, emotional, verbal, uh, physical. there are so many different types of Uh, abuse uh, of women. And it really has to stop. And and it's so rampant and so pervasive in society, I'm not exactly sure how. So you can imagine my disdain, my disgust, my shock when I read a recent survey about pelvic exams and young girls. And this is unneeded pelvic exams. Um, There's also, there have been a couple of cases in the U.S. recently, a physician, it was Andrew Yang, who was a Democratic um, presidential candidate, whose wife came out and said that she had been sexually assaulted by her gynecologist when she was pregnant. Um, So it's just shocking. And so apparently, there are um, uh, there there are so many unnecessary pelvic exams being done um, in this day and age. In the past, doctors believed that a pelvic exam was necessary annually once your uh, girl's period started and then definitely once a woman started having sex. But evidence has demonstrated over the past several decades that routine pelvic exams for women under the age of 21 are unnecessary. So I was absolutely... Gobsmacked when I read this particular study and the finding in that study that an estimated 1.4 million teenage girls and young women in the U.S. receive unnecessary pelvic exams. 1.4 million. So we're looking at 140,000 Canadian girls and women receiving unnecessary pelvic exams. Now, the last thing anybody does is wake up in the morning and say, I want to go to the gynecologist. I want to put my feet in the stirrups. It is the most uncomfortable position that women, girls and women can be in. But can you imagine that power gulf, that disparity between a teen girl and the adult doctor, male doctor performing the exams? pelvic exams can be nothing short of traumatic for some women, especially those who have been victims of sexual assault in the past. And even worse than this is that some of those pelvic exams are actually sexual assault. There are predatory doctors out there that abuse their patients. And of course, we've seen the headlines we know about the gymnastics, the USA gymnastics um, Olympic coach Larry Nasser. Uh, there was also a gynecologist, Dr. George Tyndall at USC, and, um, and as well, uh, not to mention Evelyn um, uh, Evelyn Yang. Uh, Evelyn Yang. Um, but also there's um, pelvic exams are actually done. This is another shocking bit of news that I found out, and they're actually trying to change the informed consent process. There are a number of women who are having pelvic exams when they are anesthetized for surgical procedures. So they're actually trying to make uh, that an informed consent process. And I I do think we need uh, to change that, and we need to, you know, girls and women and Um, need to understand, you know, do you need a pelvic exam? Or more importantly, when do you need a pelvic exam? Now, I examine women all the time. um, And I am certainly not anti pelvic exam. And I believe that I I do a a limited and I do an inspection and a limited pelvic exam for women who may be leaking urine, maybe have prolapse, maybe have vaginal dryness. I am against unnecessary pelvic exams. There are only two good reasons that a woman should experience a pelvic exam by her doctor or her nurse who who it is within her scope of practice and it is within my scope of practice. And one reason is because she is experiencing symptoms that I addressed um, or um, additionally, she may have abnormal vaginal bleeding or pain or particularly difficult periods that need to be checked out or... Uh, for routine screening for precancerous changes. That's not something that I would do, but if I did see some changes or something that looked unusual on an exam, then I would advise the woman to actually have it looked at by her physician. As those changes can lead to cervical cancer. But for women without symptoms or risk factors, routine pelvic exams and pap tests should begin at age 21 and no sooner. And after age 21, they're recommended every three years until the age of 30. After a woman turns 30, have the option of getting an HPV test without a pelvic exam if you should choose. And it is up to you. It is a woman's choice. And it's very important to have this conversation with your doctor about whether you want to have um, a pelvic exam or not, because we need to start practicing trauma-informed care as well in gynecologist offices and for women who are experiencing intimate health issues like bladder leakage and vaginal dryness, painful sex, vaginismus, um, all, low sexual desire, anorgasmia, um, uh, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Um, because unnecessary pelvic exams can cause harm in the form of false positives. Uh, Follow-up testing can be scary, inconvenient, expensive. And um, so it's Also, keep in mind that cervical cancer under the age of 21 is extremely rare. And um, even if a girl starts sexual activity in her early teens and catches a dangerous strain of HPV, HPV, human papillomavirus, the sexually transmitted virus that causes the majority of cervical cancer, a first pap test at 21 will protect her because her body is likely to have cleared the virus on its own. And cervical cancer takes years to develop anyway. A sexually active teenager, yes, should be treated, should be tested, sorry, for sexually transmitted infections and receive counseling from a provider on her birth control options. But neither of these require a pelvic exam. This particular subject is uh, something that, um, you know, just 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 enrages me I have to say and it's typically narcissists who are have a rage problem um, and you know I was really interested to see this because of course I have dealt with many women in my clinical practice I have experienced uh, firsthand the narcissistic abuse of somebody with narcissistic personality disorder or a sociopath, psychopath. I really don't know what diagnosis this particular person had, but he had something. And, um, but you know, I was very interested to see that narcissists all follow the same patterns and they actually use some of the common phrases. Um, you know, they all use these same phrases and what was interesting to me was that, um, uh, was that the women who've, you know, told me things over the years, um, you know, I can read these the lines in this particular article. So I just want to um, kind of just give you a, uh, you know, basically about what narcissistic personality disorder is. Um, they are the most important people on, on the planet. Um, they actually don't feel great about themselves on the inside. They... Um, uh, they want your light for their darkness. They're part of the dark triad um, of of people. And and so if you get into a relationship with one of them, it can be extremely dangerous. Whether it's a ro- even more uh, dangerous is a romantic relationship with them. And um, because what happens is they follow this particular pattern where narcissists engage in love bombing. And so they pretend to be everything you have ever wanted. Um, you are the perfect uh, mate, you are, you're you're going to stay together forever. There's nobody like you. They really put you high up on a pedestal uh, only to turn it back on you further down the line. So you, you just wait. And so this little love bombing is a manipulative tactic to reel in their targets. And you have been targeted by a narcissistic personality disorder person because they see something in you that says, I can do this to them. Um so they might shower you with affection and gifts and then once they realize that they've got you they've hooked you in they've reeled you in they start gaslighting and abusing your victim and then that leads to confusion and um and gaslighting is is from a movie from the 40s i think it was um where a man was trying to drive his wife crazy like saying you know i think it had something to do with putting the light out the gaslight outside um, and he claimed that he did, and he didn't, and you know, and so they, they do this kind of confusion thing, like, um, you know, what are you upset about? Um, you know, after you've argued about it for 30 minutes, they they always, they're always wanting you to argue. They're always very upset about something that you said or you did, and they want you to come over here and discuss it with them. And they are extremely upset about it. And then you, because you typically are a compassionate empath, you might say, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to say that. that's not what I meant. That's not what I said. That is what you said. And I am very upset about it. And you know that upsets me. Or you might send them a text about something and they might say, this is a conversation for an individual. Person, this you should not have sent me this text, and so they all seem to have this childlike, um, obnoxious, um, you know, this you know, just horrible behavior. But it's the target who responds in a way that's thinking that they are the problem, that they are the cause for all of this, and then they're always thinking. You know, what happened to this wonderful person that I was with, this amazing person who love bombed me? They don't realize that it was love bombing, but this amazing person that I had this beautiful relationship with, and they want to go back to that relationship we well, will never go back to that because that wasn't real. So narcissists pre- pretty much go through this idealization stage where things move very quickly. Um, you know, people some people do mesh really well. But in this case, it's it's a little bit too good, too soon, too much. Um, And it's creepy, quite (laughs) frankly. Um, you know, they'll give you the whole, you're my soulmate kind of a thing. And then it moves on to the devaluation stage. And that's that stage where after you've been hooked, they start showing their true self. And so the insults and the put downs start slipping into what they say. And they subtly criticize things about you that they actually once loved. And everything they say is part of their scheme to shatter your confidence. And you know, they are con men, quite frankly. Uh, but the inter- that nastiness is always intertwined with some affection because the narcissist knows they have to keep Up the illusion that the relationship is worth saving or that the relationship is real. So they pretend that they can still be loving, but they and they make the narcissist believe that the insults are all their fault. And so during this phrase, narcissists may utter some of these things, which I don't actually think I went through. Um, the, the very first phase, that idealization phase, they will say, you know, we don't need anyone else. Um, you're so kind, creative, beautiful, gorgeous. We will be together forever. So all narcissists will use those phrases. So during the devaluation phase, where they're actually putting you down and insulting you, you might hear things like, you're crazy, you're too sensitive, no wonder nobody else likes you, nobody wants you, you're so insecure, what's wrong with you? Aren't I more important to you than your friends or your tears won't work on me? Why are you crying? So these are some of the common statements. They are being extremely manipulative and manipulative and they are actually the master manipulators. Um, and so they will also probably start explaining away their behavior if they're ever challenged on it, saying things like, I'm like this because my parents were so mean to me. They actually might make up stories. I, I knew one narcissist who made up a story that his parents had a car that, you know, had holes in the floor. I mean, this per, this person was from a very wealthy family, but this he pretended he was from a very poor family. Or they might say their ex cheated on me and that's why. Or they might say that love is just hard and you have to continuously work on it. Or they might actually say that their their parents you know did something that they actually didn't do thanks for listening to the sunday night health show podcast you can subscribe rate or review on your favorite podcast app and if you've got a question about your health the nurse is always in so email me nursetalk at hotmail.com and i just might answer your question anonymously of course on next week's show for now have a happy and healthy week